Major General Charles Bowden, you are a phenomenal pilot, astronaut, and administrator of NASA. Welcome to Johannesburg. It's great to be back, and uh, I'm having a great time. I'm sorry this is our final day here, so but that's okay. So let's start with the first obvious question, which is, how is it being in space? It's, you know, being in space, and when you and I talked, boy, what is it, uh, seven years ago, I told you I was searching for a, a word that wasn't old, and I, I continued to look. It's still awesome. Uh, it, it is an unbelievable experience. It's something that, in spite of the fact that you've trained quite a bit and you're technically ready for it, um, you know, the, the sensation of feeling, uh, being free of gravity, although gravity, you're still in a gravity environment, but, but you've got this force that you don't deal with every day called centrifugal force that's competing with gravity and allows you to float. So that part's phenomenal. To feel your stomach and your other organs inside kind of moving around and going where they want to go, um, that part's phenomenal. And, and then the other part is the sensation of sight. Uh, looking at the planet from that, from that vantage point um, just completely changes your perspective. Looking at the atmosphere how very thin it is in relative terms and and the other thing is just the absence of borders and boundaries and stuff that that tend to divide us when we think about them and and they're not really there so yeah i mean awesome truly is the word isn't it i i i've searched for a better one but that's pretty good awesome is the right word and I suppose that, I mean, we're here in Africa. I mean, you've obviously flown over Africa several times. I mean, you can't see borders. You can't see all of the things that we fight about on the ground, can you? You really can't. And um, I, one of my favorite images that I like to show on my trips, because when we, I flew the Hubble Space Telescope mission was my second flight, and we were at 600 kilometers. So we were pretty high for shuttle, and or, or pretty high for any human space flight other than going to the moon. And, um, but you got a, a beautiful view of Earth, and my, I can remember taking some images with an IMAX camera, and I took one slide out of that, or one frame, and it's the bulk of the Middle East. And no borders, no boundaries. It looks absolutely breathtaking. I mean, now it's desert, but I look. I find that there's beauty in the desert, and and you you just stop in your tracks and wonder, okay, why is it that we can't get along? That, you know, it just there's no obvious reason that uh, that we shouldn't be able to communicate with each other and to work with each other and to partner with each other because that's that's kind of the way it looks when you're off off the planet. The other thing is the fact that you really feel insignificant because from, from the vantage point of space, there is no sign that human beings are down here, other than the fact that we can see long linear features. So you can see roads and bridges and runways, and you can deduce that, okay, there must be some intelligent life form that put that stuff down there. But but you don't see buildings, you, don't, you definitely don't see people. And you really can't see the Great Wall of China from space. Uh, you know, we get into that a lot. It depends on the, uh, it depends on the orbit of your flight, Yes. I was fortunate in that three of my four missions were in a relatively high inclination orbit. So I did get to see the Great Wall of China. What happens is you can't see all of the Great Wall of China, but it, as you probably know, if you've ever been there, there are parts of the Great Wall of China that you don't see even from the ground because they're gone. You know, it's, um, you got to remember how old it is. And the Chinese are doing a pretty good job of renovating, renovating is not the right word, restoring and capturing the beauty of, uh, you know, this, this ancient. Marvel, but there are sections of it that are gone. Yeah. 
You, you mentioned you were one of two astronauts who deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, that must have been quite an extraordinary moment in history. Yeah. The, the, this great telescope outside the Earth's atmosphere, the, the quality of images that, that are now available to science, that must have been something, right? It was, um, you know, I flew four times and people ask a lot, what was your favorite flight or what was the most exciting or what, what was this and that? Uh, Hubble stands up there because of the greatness of the telescope, of the observatory, really, because it's, it's got six instruments in it. So it's, it's truly an observatory yeah. with, with six different telescopes or platforms. But um, what was so special about the flight, other than the fact that I had a, a phenomenal crew, uh, absolutely superb ground support team, and while there were two of us, Steve Hawley and, and me, mainly Steve was responsible for controlling the remote manipulator system that actually lifted it out and, and let it go. Um, it, it was a, an incredible team effort, as we found, because things didn't go right. Uh, you know, it, we had a hard time getting it out of the payload bay because the arm didn't behave the way that it did when we were training. You know, we were, theoretically, we were just going to put this, grab this thing and just lift it straight out of the payload bay. Um, but the arm didn't do that. It, it kind of let it drift this way and that way. And so we actually had to, I had to spend a couple of hours reading numbers, attitude and, and uh, you know, and angle numbers to Steve so that he could go joint by joint and get it safely out of the payload bay. And then we had a, a solar array that, that stuck. Um, and that took most of the day to, to resolve. And then we finally got it deployed, only to come back and find out that we had a slight problem with its vision. But uh, yes. other than that, it was okay. Yes. That was management's fault. No, I wish I could say that. But, you know, the, and I talk to kids here about, because one of the, I tell them three things that I, I want them to always remember. One is study really hard. The other one is work hard at anything that they do so that they try to become the best, whether they really get there or not. And then don't be afraid of failure. That They cannot be afraid of failure because failure is something that life brings you. You know, you, you can make the best plans in the world and all of a sudden things change and, and you're faced with failure. And what's important is to get back up. Had we not had the failure with Hubble um, initially with its, its focus problem, I, it is doubtful that the Hubble Space Telescope would be the absolutely phenomenal observatory that it is today because we found that, boy, we've got a, a telescope that's not performing well, so we've got to come up with some, some fixes as quickly as we can. The first thing we did was the interim fix of uh, this big thing that looked like a telephone booth that was essentially mirrors and lenses, a set of eyeglasses for Hubble. And then over time, with each upgrade on each of the six instruments, we managed to put in a total new uh, telescope that had its own corrective vision. So today, Hubble is far greater in its performance than I think anybody ever believed when they designed it and built it. I mean, it's a fascinating story of how something that had so much planning, so much technology, so many smart people, and yet, like the world, something went wrong and you had to fix it. And the real lesson is learning from the failure, learning how to fix it. That's, that's humanity in action, isn't it? We have a saying in the United States, it's probably an international saying, that necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, when you find that if you want to accomplish something, you've got to do something that doesn't presently exist. Um, one of the things I find phenomenal about this, this trip to South Africa, 
Africa, much more so than my previous two trips, was having an opportunity to really get out and, and interact with some of the, the business people here in South Africa who are in the space sector and to find out how, how rapidly they've grown, how, much, how many companies are engaged in building CubeSats and in launching and flying CubeSats for everybody from school kids, you know, right on up to the government and um, really on the cutting edge of new uh, advances in space and space exploration and to find out also that most people in South Africa have no idea. So, you know, one of the things that we've tried to do, um, w my working with the people from the American Embassy here, um, because we consider ourselves partners, is to try to give or leave behind some ways that we found that you communicate and tell your story better, whether it's social media or bringing people out to events where you can introduce them to the kinds of things you're doing. You know, we have visited some absolutely incredible facilities here, whether it's out at, at the uh, space agency's uh, you know, communication site, or we did not get up to SKA, but we got a chance to visit with the people who talk about it. And those kinds of things, we probably should find a way to introduce to school kids and, and adults alike. So that'll be good. Indeed, I mean, and there are two questions I'd like to ask you. The one is, the the, the second one is going to be the, the these micro satellites and just what a phenomenal technological advancement those are. But the first question is, it's quite remarkable that that everybody can have a space program. You don't need to put it up there yourself. You can get you can get someone else. What do you think of of South Africa and Africa's uh, space programs? I think they're absolutely incredible. To be quite honest, South Africa, without a doubt, leads all the other African nations in terms of space and space research and everything else. Um, but you talked about you don't have to have a space program or you don't have to have formal facilities or everything. Uh, when we were in Ethiopia, uh, the Ethiopians had just shipped off uh, a CubeSat that um, I think the Russians are going to launch for them and, you know, help them to build and everything. And so they're, they're part of the family of spacefaring nations. Uh, so space has brought an opportunity for everybody to participate. We, we were really proud in NASA in that we supported a, an elementary school in Arlington, Virginia uh, called St. Thomas More. They built, I mean, the students built their own CubeSat that took uh, a camera out of, a, out of an iPhone and the memory card and built their own CubeSat and it's up in space now and it's an earth observing satellite from an elementary school in Arlington, Virginia. So I, I think it changes everything. I mean, it's really amazing. South Africa's got one, I think, called Sunset that was built in the University of Stellenbosch. I mean, they are they're just truly amazing. Uh, miniaturization of tech. Forget about cell phones. I mean, yeah. this is, you know, you take a camera from an iPhone. That's just, I mean, it blows my mind. I grew up, you know, in the, the very early years of of the 70s. Yeah. You know, I was born the year after the moon landing, watching all of this amazing stuff. And now it's, now it's so much more compact and so much more accessible to so many other nations and school kids. It allows you to do a number of things that you could not do before because with much larger, more expensive satellites, they generally tended to be focused on one particular thing. Uh, we saw when we were at one of the space companies uh, while we were here, um, they actually had just finished supporting the production of a, a small CubeSat that had two cameras. One of them was looking 
uh, at the oceans, the, the the water around South Africa, and actually looking, helping with piracy and and helping with illegal fishing and the like, because that was the the wavelength in which that camera looked. And the other camera was um, was one that was looking at at land developments and the like. So uh, there's all kinds of stuff that that today can be done. We have a a mission that's on its way to Mars should land on the 26th. So um, a little more than a week from from now, called Insight. And Insight had two CubeSats that flew along with it, and they were popped out of the spacecraft somewhere about halfway there. And so, for the first time ever, we actually have CubeSats that are that are uh, you know going from Earth to Mars, and they're kind of watching everything that goes on around this this satellite. And and from Martian orbit, they're going to actually look at what's going on down on the surface. And we've never done that before. While we're on the subject, let's let's talk about Mars because, of course, that is the great frontier now. You know, the moon's so lost. You know, so last season. Um, going to Mars is the big thing for humanity. I'm, I'm also curious in a side uh, a side thing about uh, Microsoft's Halo Lens and how that was used. If you could talk a little bit about that, the yeah. you know the, the the drivers of the rovers practice where they would go and what they would do. That's a that's a useful use of a new technology too. You know, you talk about. I mentioned the fact uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Back when we found the problems with the Hubble Space Telescope and we determined that we were going to have to, or we were going to want to send astronaut crews up to do the repair on Hubble, um, we needed a way that we could let the astronauts actually see and feel what it was like to move components in and out of the telescope, and we didn't. The telescope was in space, so you couldn't do that. And we started working with the industry, and it was in the early days. You know, what is the Hololens today, which we have on board the International Space Station, by the way? And the crews actually use the Hololens to train before they actually move rovers around on the surface of different places. But back then, we were able to take a spacewalk crew, and they would, you know, put a glove on and then have the virtual reality uh, goggles. And we could give them a box and put in, you know, use computers and other stuff to, to give it the moments of inertia that the real package in the telescope would have. And what they saw was them reaching out and grabbing, say, the uh, large, uh, what, a large field, large field planetary camera and pulling it out when, in fact, they were just grabbing a cardboard box. But that was the way we trained the Hubble Space Telescope repair crew. And they said it was absolutely amazing because when they got there, it was just like they had been taking things in and out forever because they had trained using a artificial reality then now or virtual reality then now we have virtual um, uh, augmented you name them so there's several levels of reality that we use today and and how is the the mission to mars going uh, it depends on which one you're talking about. There, there are so many different missions to Mars. I mentioned InSight, which is on its way right now. It's a lander, and it's scheduled to be there on the 26th. And um, it'll be the first time we're able to put instruments like seismometers or seismographs. Uh, there's a thermometer that's actually going to go into the Martian surface, a, a drill that's going to drill down several meters and actually take a core of Martian soil and store it so that we can pick it up and bring it back to 
earth later on when we figure out how to do that. Um, and then after that, Mars 2020 is another curiosity-like rover that's actually going to have with it a, an experiment that's going to take carbon dioxide out of the Martian atmosphere and dissociate it into oxygen and carbon monoxide. But the oxygen is going to be used to make breathing oxygen and also oxygen that can go as fuel for a, an ascent vehicle to get humans off the surface. So uh, Mars is in good shape. I'm looking forward to getting humans there in the 2030s. Okay, I mean, do you think we'll see people on uh, Mars in our uh, lifetime? No question. I don't think I don't think there's any doubt. Unless there's always. Let me back up here. Okay. Let me be. Let me not get carried away. There is always the possibility that the spacefaring nations of the world will decide. Okay. We we know we had a plan to do that. We know we were marching well down that road. But things have happened so bad here on the planet that we're going to forego that for a while. That could happen. I don't think it will. And one of the reasons I don't think so is because we have succeeded in getting so many different nations engaged in the journey to Mars so that um, a number of nations have roles to play. If you look at the Curiosity rover, it used to be a time that only the U.S. had anything that was successfully operating on the surface of Mars. Today, there are five different nations with actual instruments or components of the Curiosity rover and about 15 nations when you talk about the scientists and engineers who are engaged with experiments that are going on there. 2020 rover is is just going to be more of the same insight that I talked about. Insight is actually a European mission for the most part managed by our jet propulsion lab out in Pasadena, California. So the the seismograph that's going to look at Mars quakes and the the thing that's coring uh, those are French, German. Uh, most of the most of the instruments on on Insight are are foreign uh, international partner um, instruments. So it's it's an international thing. And, and what do you make of this sort of massive shift we've seen from public sector or, or NASA-led uh, initiatives to the initiatives being led by the likes of Bezos and Musk and uh, uh, Richard Branson? You know, how important are these to keeping children in particular, I think, excited about space in the way that, you know, the moon landing did? I, I will go back to my saying again, my time-worn saying here, uh, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. We found in NASA... We were reminded again after we lost Columbia in 2003, uh, you know, February 1st, when we lost Columbia, the shuttle was not an unsafe vehicle, but it, it, it brought to stark reality the fact that we were operating a vehicle going into 30 some odd years that wasn't intended to do exploration. And that's what NASA is all about. NASA is about going as far as you can go and going places you've never been before. So we had to admit that we were having a lot of fun with shuttle and it was a lot of fun to operate in low Earth orbit, but that was not allowing us to go beyond low Earth orbit where we need to go. And so President Obama kind of said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna follow through on the decisions that were made years ago. We're gonna phase out of the shuttle. We're gonna rely on American industry and international industry because we know what they can do. We've never built a rocket. I hate to tell people that, but NASA's never built a big rocket. We always contract for somebody like a Boeing or somebody else to build it, and then we buy it and own it and operate it. That's expensive for one thing. It's very inefficient for another thing because we've got people that we're trying to do exploration work and run human spaceflight down here. So we decided we'd try another business model, if you will. And so we're going to the rental car model. So we're, we're calling Avis. 
or Colin Hertz or our Avis and Hertz is SpaceX and Boeing. And we're saying, hey, for the next few years, we want to send crews of four, five, six, seven people to the International Space Station. And we want to do it on uh, every quarter. So every three months, we want to send a crew. Can you give us a proposal for how much it would cost us to do that? And then tell us how much it's going to cost you to build a, a launch vehicle and a capsule that you can put the crew in. And so that's that was the beginning of the the uh, commercial crew program and it you know we haven't tested that yet but we've been flying commercial cargo f since 2012 and it's ha it has been a superb uh, success NASA doesn't provide transportation for anything from earth to space anymore we go to our to our pr public and private partners and we let them do the work we pay for the service and it's it's been great and we're trying to help other nations around the world understand the same thing we've convinced the Department of Defense uh, we've convinced a lot of other government agencies is that you don't have to go buy expensive rockets anymore. You can buy the service. You can buy imagery. Uh, you know, people make, uh, the intelligence community would like to say, yeah, but we are the only ones that have the kind of imagery we need. And then you say, well, not really. Uh, you know, scientists and engineers are really designing some incredible optical systems today. And we can, we think you can buy something that's even better than you could build. Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, going to Mars. I heard Elon Musk speaking at the South by Southwest conference, and he said, I want to die on Mars, just not on impact. See, I'm, I'm trying to tell South African kids, follow your, your, your countrymen. Don't follow him there. You don't, yeah. don't want to die on Mars. Want to go to Mars and come back so you can share your experience with other South African kids who will follow in your footsteps. And so um, I'm hoping I can convince Elon that we can safely get him to Mars and back so that he can then finally come back to South Africa and share his story with kids uh, in the townships and everywhere so that they too can believe they can become an Elon Musk. So he, we're very proud of him. Yes. But uh, but I would love to see the South, you know, the, the kids of South Africa be able to brag about, about my countryman, Elon Musk, who's helping to lead the world in exploration. Great, thank you. One last question. I mean, you've put him on the spot here, so he's gonna he's gonna say I dropped a dime on him, but that's okay. That's okay. We still love him here, and we we'd take him back anyway. He's allowed to come and visit any time he wants. Good, thank you. So you've you've flown combat missions in Vietnam. You've flown the space shuttle. You've deployed the Hubble telescope. You've run NASA. Um, which of which of all of those planes was the most fun to fly? Of all the planes I've flown, you know, I can let me break it down for you. The absolute best, favorite, most favorite aircraft I ever flew was the A6 Intruder. It was my Vietnam fighter, not fighter. It was an an attack aircraft, um, subsonic. It didn't go supersonic speeds but it was incredible at doing its mission. Uh, there were two of us sitting side by side. We flew very low, all weather, night, you name it, and we did an incredible job. Uh, All-time most favorite anything, um, two different, if I'm doing it with people, lots of people, then I want to be in a, a Huey helicopter or an old CH-46 helicopter because I love having Marines in the back with me and being dependent on a young 17, 18-year-old Marine when I can't see the landing zone and she is telling me right, left, back, forward, easy, down, 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 and you know, talking me down to the ground. There's nothing that's more exhilarating than that. But then I have to come back to the shuttle. There is something very special 
special about flying a spaceship, uh, you know, and having an opportunity to bring a spaceship back to Earth, even if it's a glider. Uh, so I've, I've, as you said, I've had the best of, of all worlds. So I, I've been a happy man. I have to grow up one of these days. My wife keeps asking me when am I going to grow up. So, Funny enough, so does mine. Yeah, I know, I know. And I ride a bicycle now, and she, she is actually more worried about me riding my bicycle than she was when I was flying in space because I've had some pretty bad falls on a bike. You know, it's a racing bike. I, I don't race, but I'm on the road a lot, and, and this time of year, the, pad, the, you know, the trails get slippery and stuff, and I've had some pretty bad spills, and she says, geez, just grow up. <laughs> and much, much more traffic than in space. Much more traffic than in space. Absolutely right. <laughs> Major General Charles Bowden, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so very much. It, it is always good to talk to you, and uh, thanks for reminding me of our conversation in 2011. And next time we get together, hopefully not as long, I, I'm going to go back to the thesaurus and the dictionary again. I'm, I'm going to find a better word than awesome. I don't, I'm with you. I think awesome sums it up. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for the time.